Oh, you're my hero, Cap. Thank you. I try <laughs> sometimes. Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the January 25th, 2023 QPSC. This is our first one of the year. Happy New Year. Welcome. Um, Madam Clerk, let's go right to roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. And Trustee Esteem. Here. Thank you. We do have a quorum. Wonderful. Um, uh, as everyone knows, we open up with uh, just kind of a reminder of our purpose, the purpose of the QPSC. I, I always read it and I'll read it again. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with the continuous practice of direct communication, with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. So with that, we'll sort of get the meeting started. Madam Clerk, is there any public comment? No public comment. Uh, and just a reminder to our public, we welcome public comment. As they say, all feedback is a gift, um, but barring none, we'll move on. Let's uh, just jump into uh, the first item of the of the day. That's uh, uh, the, the, the article that we always uh, open up with. This article is entitled Understanding the Patient Experience, a Conceptual Framework. Uh, as, as those of you who peruse the agenda, we're going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive into patient experience, and I thought this might be a nice way to kind of frame this discussion and sort of kind of the uh, nebulous nature of this, this word that we always use, the patient experience. And as everyone knows, in this, in this forum, we always talk about steep. Uh, the, the elements, the domains of quality. And the P, of course, is, is patient-centeredness slash patient experience. Um, I'm going to do one quote, and then I'm going to open it up to the trustees and, uh, and senior executives uh, 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 and med staff uh, uh, leaders to make any comment, if any. Um, to extract from the article, the sum of all interactions, uh, sorry, uh, the, the, the article goes into sort of how there's sort of an absence of a consensus definition of patient experience, largely due to its multidimensionality and kind of multifaceted nature across a variety of domains. So this quote came into play. Uh, uh, it's been asserted that one could define patient uh, experience as the sum of all interactions shaped by an organization's culture that influence patient perceptions across a continuum of care. So four themes are sort of present in this definition brought forth by the Barrel Institute. One is personal interactions. I think that's not rocket science. Uh, you know, uh, we're all born of our interactions on a daily basis, especially in the healthcare setting. Organizational culture. I think this is a, a, an important aspect of any healthcare organization. What is their commitment to doing this work and how do they set the framework and the environment to do that? Third are patient and family perceptions. Many patients and families bring pre-perceived no notions of organization of, of healthcare interactions when they come to the organization. How can the organization shape that to be a positive one? And last is continuum of care, uh, which is uh, obviously an important one. Uh, interactions across from the ED to the inpatient service to back to the outpatient service and the like. So with that, I, I found it as an interesting framework to consider this gargantuan topic uh, that that we all talk about. Um, I'll open up to trustees, and then I'm going to ask, of course, Dr. Torna Bene to make some comments because uh, she always has something great to say. Trustees Banerjee and Esteen. Yeah, um, great article, 
And I was thinking of, as you think about the continuum, and I thought of um, person, patient, user, uh, a couple of things, uh, you know, jumped out at me. One is that talking about client or consumer and why they've used the nomenclature that they have. And I think it's so important because sometimes we forget that, that not we, we don't forget that, but just to constantly remember that when we interface with a person, they are sometimes at their most vulnerable and with the least amount of agency. So when you're a client or a customer, you gen generally that comes with a, a set of, a sense of agency and a sense of, you know, uh, of understanding that recognition that you're not just a consumer, but you're, you know, you can shape the outcomes that um, in the environment that you, you are in. So um, I think that person, like that first thing and seeing the humanity of the person, I feel so much of that and cultivating the conditions depends so much on the interior condition of the of all of, of the provider as well. So it says the humanity of the provider as well as the humanity of the patient because how we frame what we see is so defined by our own um, value systems, worldview, our underpinning values as well. So how this person is seen by their mother or their pastor might be very different from how this person is seen by their provider or the, uh, you know, person at the gate. So how are we able to kind of cultivate those that we build our own internal capacity to see the full humanity of people who show up differently because you have a different set of your identity. That identity work is really important because how we show up when we are even in good health is what sort of agency we have what sort of belongingness we feel within the community and how is it designed? So I thought of like so many things, like we talk about wayfinding as one of those, but also even before a single word or a, a, a treatment plan is given, it's like, how do you navigate um, the system? So just so much on that, even before the patient happens, the, the to the left, that person, what, the magnitude of being able to see the full humanity of a patient. And that's so context specific. <clears throat> Thanks, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Esteem. Yeah, thank you for the, the article and the, the thoughtfulness about how our patients perceive quality within our systems. I think sometimes in conversations with patients and family members, and even how I myself have perceived care, we often, I've sometimes receive care from my HMO provider, which I will not name, but often it's like, well, you know, they really provide good care if it's routine, but when I needed something, they weren't there for me, or they really showed up when I had a huge issue, but when I need women's health care, they're not there for me, you know, or, or something like that. I think the perception from the consumer side can often be based in what problem I'm experiencing now or not experiencing and how the system rose to the challenge. So I think it's, it's there are many perspectives. Like you said, this is a gargantuan topic. But I think uh, we have to continue patient-centered care. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. Dr. Dr. Tornabene, good evening. 
Hi, good evening. Yeah, this, I, I, I shared it also with a number of physician leaders, forwarded it on, just, it spoke to me deeply after some recent health experiences I've had with lots of interactions with various um, health systems. And, and I think um, that I, I loved the framework um, because it helps us think about, okay, how are we going to improve? What elements of, are we going to improve? How do we tackle it? Um, and this framework could certainly help. But one of the things that resonated most with me was centering personhood that it's the, the, we first start with the human and then a human might have an injury or a disease, which might be the next layer of the onion. And then outside of that is that human who might have an injury of, or a disease then interacts with a health system. And, um, but the core piece is their personhood. And, and that really, um, that and the article just um, really spoke to me about, about that around how do we center personhood and not the disease and not all of the, you know, how, how do we make that the central part of how we interface with our patients? Yeah, agreed. Any other comments from, from the gallery? I'll, I'll, I'll close this section by, I'm going to quote one of my old professors who I kind of credit for building me into the doctor that I became. His name was Dr. Dan Foster. He was the chair of medicine at my, at my med school for many years. And uh, he once was taught, he, he always loved to talk about the existential stuff. And uh, he once said to me, Taff, you know what the secret to caring for patients is? And I was well, I'm ready to write down. He goes, caring for patients. You have to really care for your patients. So that's part of our, the, what we do here as part of our, 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 our culture and to hopefully uh, drive that so Everyone cares about our patients from EVS to engineering to parking attendant to uh, to anesthesiologist, chair of anesthesiologist sitting in the room. Um, so uh, it, it, it all happens there. So with that, I appreciate the discussion. We're going to be we're going to be hearing about sorry, Trustee Banerjee. We're going to be hearing more about this tonight from Ms. Ng, which we really look forward to. And uh, Trustee Banerjee. Yeah. One other thing is that I would be so interested because there's the individual way in which we are called to see the full humanity or the person, that person. But I think the collective thing of like, uh, when we see a culture of safety scores, or we see that, how how do we think we, what do we think of the care we provide good? Would you bring your mom or dad or your child to this? No, like much less of that. And so it's like, what is it like if we had to bring our, parent or our son, what would or, or our daughter or grandchild, what would that care look like on that other side for us to like feel like we don't have to have a voice in the like uh, to be able to do and maybe that might help us like ask those questions about like what it is that makes it um, as a patient feel like this is a place that that you know I can get so it might remind that might be a collective exploration yeah and again something that we're trying to track amongst our own people is this a place that we would recommend that's sort of the in my view the highest recommendation our own people would want to come here because they uh, they know how the sausage is made <laughs> behind the scenes so so with that uh thank you trustee Banerjee I'll close out item a and we'll go to item B. So item B is the consent agenda for, for the public. 
um, uh, the, a hefty consent agenda, B1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I will note for the public, it was a 675 page document uh, that we had to review this evening. Uh, we had uh, minutes, we had 30 uh, policies and procedures, three medical staff policies, two privileging forms, uh, uh, provider education competency, and of course, Alameda Health, uh, Alameda Hospital med staff bylaws. So with that, uh, trustees, the consent agenda is before you, before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of B1 through B6. Are there any items you feel need to be removed? It was, it was, uh, it was war and peace trying to read all that stuff. No, no items to be removed. Same. With that, can I entertain a motion, please? I'll so, Second. Uh, so <laughs> we have a motion on the floor to approve the entirety of the consent agenda. Madam Clerk. Yes, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Esteem. Aye. The motion passes. All right, great. We are moving. So uh, as everyone knows, at the top of this, we read the, the charter of this uh, committee, and that's to interact directly with our med staff leader. So this is the portion where we talk, where we receive medical staff discussion reports from our uh, three appointed uh, leaders. So um, we have Dr. Nikki Joshi, an ED physician, who is the chief of staff for Alameda Hospital. We have Dr. Idrisa Zali, who uh, leads the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. He's an ED doctor at San Leandro. And of course, we have Dr. Lana Lee, our newest uh, elected med staff leader. She is the chief of staff for uh, Highland and um, San Leandro, the so-called core. And she is an obstetrician gynecologist here and one of our division chiefs as well. So let's open up uh, with Dr. Joshi, then we'll do Dr. Afzali, and then we'll do Dr. Lee if that's okay. Okay, thank you everyone. Good evening. Thank you for having me to give the report for Alameda Hospital Med Staff. Um, so the report's in the packet and just wanna highlight a few things. Um, number one is community. So we will be kicking off our strategic planning committee. Uh, there already was a previous meeting, but I think really the start of it will be tomorrow, January 26th. So really looking forward to it. It's going to be a joint meeting with the healthcare district board and the HS leadership. And myself, along with Dr. Pernia and Dr. Isolani, will be representing the medical staff. Uh, under quality, I want to highlight that the medical staff bylaws revisions were provided for you. And one of the things that is happening is an alignment of our departments to more closely uh, mirror AHS. So what that means is that we have newly formed departments, anesthesia, gynecology, orthopedic surgery, and pathology that joins our already existing departments of emergency medicine, medicine, and surgery, general surgery. Um, under um, medical staff patient experience, uh, I want to highlight the bullet, bu the second bullet, which is that the emergency department will be piloting a patient welcome brochure, kind of in similar to the theme of what we were already talking about, uh, patient experience and communication go hand in hand. And this brochure was created really in conjunction with the patient experience, uh, including Angela and her team, where a brochure will be handed to the patients upon arrival. And the back of it is actually blank lines where the patient can actually write out their reason for wanting to come to the emergency department. So in addition to being informational, this packet will be a way to facilitate communication and dialogue between the nurses and the clinicians. Under sustainability, we've received some really important and infer great information from our CAO about 
our hospital infrastructure, including updates on the cooling tower and still processing, in addition to physician lounge renovations. And the last thing I want to highlight is also really happy news that a pilot hybrid neurology inpatient coverage has launched as of last week. So this will enhance our current process, which is teleneurology. So um, telemedicine using neurologists for our stroke program. And during the business hours, um, business week, we will have an in-person neurologist. So this already started last week and it's already been very positive, very much an improvement in the patient care that we're delivering. Happy to answer any questions at this point. Trustees opening it up for questions for Dr. Joshi. No questions for me. Thank you. Dr. Joshi, uh, as this uh, joint committee uh, comes together to discuss strategic planning for Alameda Hospital, and, and to remind everyone who, who's new to the audience, if there's anyone, the context, of course, is a, a 2030, if you will, seismic kind of backstop. Uh, Alameda is not seismically uh, currently uh, uh, set to run beyond 2030. Can you talk to me about the cadence of these meetings and how, how, how do you feel... How do you imagine that your role in navigating this discussion will go? I imagine the cadence will be determined um, tomorrow when we meet. Um, but my role as a med staff, I think, is interesting in the sense that we really, we meaning myself, Dr. Purnia, Dr. Isolani, together representing emergency medicine, medicine and inpatient services and surgery, will hope to give the voice for the patient to really speak to if these, in order to give the medical care that we want, these are the types of infrastructure needs that we would need to have. Uh, in addition to Alameda Hospital functioning within the system, what do we envision that we need? So we hope to provide that really important perspective and also to voice that while 2030 is you know, not so far distance, at the same time, we do have some current needs right now so that the decisions that are made for the types of infrastructure improvements and facilities can take in mind our current patient needs. Got it. So for everyone, the purpose of the meeting, well, it's not just for the 2030 and beyond, it's actually even state of operations at current state and uh, over these ensuing years. Is that accurate? I think the agenda will be most clearly laid out tomorrow, but that is something that I do hope to myself raise that, um, that in these discussions, you know, as it is, even if we plan only for something that would launch in seven years, there would still have to be some planning and strategies that would have to happen along the way in order to start in seven years. So we have to look at our current state. And even if the major thing starts seven years from now, there still needs to be actions taken in the present. Got it. So that's the perspective that I hope to relate. Got it. Mr. Fratsky, sir. Any any comments on 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 your perspectives on on what's about to launch? Is it tomorrow? You said, Doctor Joshi. It, it is tomorrow, and it's a great group. We've got you know board members, physicians, um, AHS um, leaders, um, Debbie Stebbins um, helping represent the district. So, um, and and there's new, there's going to be some new information introduced from seismic engineers. Um, some of the work that was done um, probably two to three months ago. So it's fresh, it's new. Um, we'll hear about that. We'll hear about, for the people who are kind of 
new to understanding what's going on at Alameda Hospital. We'll present an overview of the of the hospital, the capacity, the beds, um, everything that we think people will need to know. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to, and I, my guess is the cadence will be at, at least monthly, but but we will see. Depends on depends on the scope of the work. And there, and there could be some subcommittees, you know, doing some work. Yeah. I have a quick question. Two questions. Are there goals that we would like to see achieved through these committee meetings? And is there any representation from the county? Um, I, I, I'm not sure about the county, Trustee Esteen. I can check. Debbie Stebbins has the roster. Um, I can I can check in with her on that. And if there aren't, that should be a discussion point for us tomorrow at the meeting is, you know, who isn't represented here? Who did we forget um, if, if, if we need to do that? Um, I think that'll be important. Um, we'll identify what the goals are, what we hope to achieve. You know, what is our what is our endpoint with this? Is it to define in totality what that campus will be? By 2030, um, is I, I'm unsure. We have we have to come up with some options for the campus um, because we will get a feel, I believe, tomorrow for the price seismic retrofitting might be, and believe me, it's in the millions. Um, so we'll have to balance that against, uh, you know, if we move ahead with that, what do we gain? If we don't, what do we do? Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's going to be making sausage, but that's the great thing is, is the difficult discussions around it, I think, will help propel us into something good for that campus. Who are the decision makers? Is this something that AHS is leading? Is this something that the health district is going to say they want to lead? Um, it's Debbie. It's, it has been Debbie and I partnering, the executive director with myself, um, I I think we I think that's on the agenda to discuss tomorrow because one option for us may be to have an an, an Alameda board member and an AHS board member lead it and chair it. Um, so that's what we'll discuss tomorrow. I think that's on the agenda is who should lead going forward. I uh, thank you, Mark. I wanted to add there that um, we've had in the past when we've done the seismic uh, committee, we've had a member of our board um, in that space. And we are really glad to have David Sion in our guest, uh, among our guests here today. We hope he'll be appointed. Um, he's, he's the elected <clears throat> data from the Alameda Health District Board to the HS Board. With the, yes. The Fill the vacancy that's left by Tracy Jensen's de, Trustee Jensen's departure. So yeah. once um, uh, Mr. Sion uh, gets on our board, we hope that he will, as a yeah. resident and also as a member of that, that he would also be part uh, yeah. part of that. Yeah. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. That is the intent. I know David's name is down as a placeholder, along with um, Mark Friedman. Um, Trustee Friedman, he'll he'll be joining us as well. Excellent. Thank you for that discussion on that. Thank you, Dr. Joshi, for reminding us how important that is. Um, with that, let's go to Dr. Zali. Good evening, sir. 
Hi, good evening, everyone, and uh, Happy New Year, since this is my first interaction with the group since the new year. Uh, it's good to be back at work. Um, I'm, I think I might be able to share my screen uh, for my report. Uh, our, the San Leandro Leadership Committee will meet next on February 7th at 4.30 p.m., uh, so that's a little over or under two weeks from now. Um, but some of the updates I have for you under the quality pillar uh, for, one of the items we'll be reviewing is a code blue response policy uh, at that meeting. Uh, the uh, point of care ultrasound in conjunction with Alameda Hospital, this is within the ED. Uh, there's been a lot of progress made, including technical issues that have been overcome. There's a quality process that's underway already, led by uh, Dr. Choi of the emergency department. Uh, and then there's a building aspect that is yet to be rolled out uh, that requires some adjustment to credentialing files of providers, um, and that's anticipated to be completed by February. Uh, sepsis alert uh, for the emergency department went live yesterday uh, at San Leandro and Alameda. Uh, this is to uh, anticipated to perform better with CMS sepsis bundle, uh, but more importantly, outcomes with this uh, life-threatening illness. Uh, so we'll hopefully we'll see some good results from this in the coming months. Uh, pediatric readiness is the next topic. Uh, in the ED, it's a work in progress. Uh, a lot of uh, supplies have been made ready and now stocked in the ED, uh, thanks to uh, Dr. Sammy Hodroge, who's been leading that effort. There's ongoing work with pharmacy and EPIC uh, ASAP team in terms of uh, order sets and medication availability that needs to happen. Uh, it's not a, uh, there's no end to this. It's, it's going to be ongoing work, uh, but uh, getting closer and better every day. Uh, and Dr. Joshi already mentioned the hybrid neurology program that was launched with uh, Alameda doing neurology and in-person neurology uh, visits that will mainly be housed out of Alameda, but available to San Leandro as well. Uh, patient staff and experience. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the improved, improved staffing within the ED and on the inpatient floors. Um, uh, many travelers, uh, but hopefully we will continue to replace them with permanent hires as time goes on. This means improved boarding times in the emergency department um, and uh, transfers uh, out uh, continue to be a challenge. And I think as long as we're in this uh, staffing challenge uh, across the state or the country, uh, we will continue to see some of those. Um, and then the last item under the experience pillar is uh, social work case management in the ED. This is a new topic that's come up recently with regards to uh, behavioral health patients, uh, but has been a, a topic of discussion for a long time uh, and is something that I anticipate to bring up at the next uh, committee meeting uh, to have a full-time social worker present in the emergency department to assess with, assist uh, with patient care and dispositions. Um, so hopefully more updates on that next month. Uh, under the sustainability, the um, ED provider workroom is going to get a much anticipated refresh uh, beginning February 20th. This has been a work uh, in progress, and I want to thank and acknowledge everyone involved in helping make this happen, and we finally have a start date on that. Um, the uh, imaging and, and CT that we've heard so much about, uh, we will. I'm hoping to get an update, uh, at least uh, uh, on schedule report uh, before the next committee meeting on February 7th. Uh, last item is we'll have a new permanent ED manager who will be replacing our temp, Miss um, uh, Nancy Hurtland, who's, who's done an exceptional job so far in her role. Uh, and she'll be um, 
passing the baton to our permanent hire who will be starting on January 30th. I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, thank you all. That's the end of my report. Thank you, Dr. Afzali. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Afzali? Yeah. Is uh, the sepsis uh, bundle performance and outcomes, is this a pilot program that's specific to San Leandro Hospital only, or is this something that's already in existence at other sites? It's uh, in existence at Highland. This was launched at San Leandro and Alameda. Awesome. Um, and then the pediatric readiness. I know we had a, a huge RSV issue throughout the nation. Is this something that's in response to an increase in uh, pediatric census? Um, no, actually, this was launched uh, prior to that um, with uh, Cho, and uh, there was actually two uh, sort of parallel programs that were launched out of Stanford and the Children's Hospital of Oakland. Uh, they first uh, approached us back in 2018 just to take a look at the emergency departments and see how prepared we were to handle pediatric emergencies. And then it was reignited this past year in 2022, it just happened to coincide with the spike in pediatric volumes that highlighted some of the gaps that we had in coverage, um, but not necessarily in response to that. So uh, the, the spike was definitely uh, a factor, but not the trigger. Thank you. Is this also something only happening in San Leandro or is it happening in other sites as well? It's system, this is system-wide. Awesome. Thank you. Mr. Fratsky, sir. Yes. Thank you, Trustee Bouquet. I'd be remiss. We had our um, monthly operating report. It was an hour and a half to two-hour review of the operations at San Leandro today. San Leandro's surgical volumes, their patient day volumes, their ED volumes are significantly up over budget, so much so that it's provided a $6 million contribution margin to our system through December. So I wanna just thank Dr. Afzali, um, you know, Dr. Youssef, Chris Adams, Mario Harding, and all the leaders. I mean, we've got work to do on quality. We've got work to do on getting um, um, staff replaced, as Dr. Afzali has mentioned, but the leadership team is pretty much in place there now at San Leandro. So there's tremendous progress being made. Um, and I just wanted to, to piggyback that, um, Dr. Afzali, onto your report and, and, and acknowledge you and thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that, Mark. Thank you, Mr. Fratsky. That's very nice to say. On a related note, on I'll give a little bit of a shout out to the finance committee and what's happening in finance. We know that at, from our prior, what, what, what the organization has been trying to do is trying to do entity reporting. So the last finance reports gave some entity reporting by Highland, by Alameda, by San Leandro, by John, et cetera, et cetera. Very interesting stuff for everyone to take a look at too. So it's great that uh, Doc, Mr. Fratsky can, can actually isolate that, that $6 million to, to, to the entity of San Leandro. So great, great news. Yeah. Trustee Banerjee. I have one question and a comment. So um, we, I think we've discussed the CT scan imaging in the November meeting because December we were dark and then uh, January meeting of Dr. Zali, we, um, we didn't ha um, have you. So any any updates that we can get before the February meeting that you feel, uh, Mark, on um, X-ray or CT scan where movement in the last two months since we spoke? Yeah, so we have um, the 
fixed x-ray unit at San Leandro being completed in February. So we're only about a month off and that'll be up and going. We've ordered another C-arm, I believe it's in. We've ordered another mobile x-ray unit, which is coming. Um, and we start construction on the new CT scanner unit right toward the end of February, I believe. Um, and that'll run through November, December timeframe, and it'll be completed. We also are changing out our CT mobile scanner vendor because it's been inconsistent with their quality. Um, and I think over the course of the next month, we'll have a new vendor there. So there's a lot going on. Um, our, our SPD or sterile processing department will be going through a major remodeling over the course of, of calendar year 23. We're bringing in a mobile SPD unit so we can do all of the surgical instrument sterilization at San Leandro and actually ramp up that OR to three to four rooms, as well as having the capability, if we need to, to do all of Alameda hospitals. So there's a tremendous amount of planning going on right now, um, um, as well as the chillers and the coolers and the sterilizers and everything being, being looked at and replaced potentially. We've already replaced two of the sterilizers. We have one more to go. So um, it's a major lift, but our facilities team is doing a great job, and we just need to get our arms around and fix the infrastructure um, issues. Thank you. That's that's really good to hear that this work will be, the uh, imaging uh, thing will be done by next month. And also, congratulations, Dr. Afzali. You've been saying about the year to um, your increase, fourteen percent increase in the in your volumes, in your ED volumes and things, and to just really um, for the uh, for the uh, you know contributions that the uh, that the patients that the um, your providers and your staff are seeing, and for um, the contributions to the system as well. And I'm also very happy to see that both. Uh, Alameda Hospital as well as San Leandro Hospital have your physician's lounge or workroom refreshed. That's really nice to you. Is this workroom similar to the physician lounge? Uh, is that? Uh, uh, no, this is uh, our actual workroom where we sit oh, uh, and oh, they eat to uh, do oh. our work. Yeah. Uh, much needed refresh that is uh, overdue, I guess. Well, I do hope that you all also have a lounge or some other place too, because it's a matter of equity. We know that um, our Highland folks got a really nice uh, upgrade in their physician lounge, which was so much overdue and much needed. And sometimes there's efficiencies in scale, like when you're doing one, doing it across the system, you can order things probably cheaper, I don't know, but it's really good to see that Alameda Hospital is getting a refresh and we hope that San Leandro Hospital will also have that. Thank you. So with that, um, Mr. Frasky, I'll say your uh, detailed recollection, uh, recollection on all those issues inspires confidence. So thank you. Yeah, and, and Trustee Bouquet, I just wanna piggyback on something Tr Trustee Banerjee said. If you walk into San Leandro Hospital in the next, probably next month, you may not recognize it because the lobby has been completely upgraded new paint, new new flooring, um, just it, it's going to look really nice. So um, if you ever get a chance, just 
you know, walk in the lobby. We're also repaving the front um, entrance under the overhang because there was a bunch of holes in there. So we're doing quite a bit to give curb appeal, if you will, to our hospitals. Curb appeal matters, doesn't it, sir? Yeah. Um, all right. Thank you, Dr. Vizali. Thank uh, you. Thank you all. Dr. Lee, good evening. Good evening. And I want to wish everyone a happy Lunar New Year as well. Um, so I'm here to present the AHS MEC report to QPSC. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, your reports are in your packet, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. Uh, under quality, the medical staff is getting ready to roll out a new roll out a new improved program for ongoing professional practice evaluation. Um, we have approved department-specific metrics as being part of the OPPE program. We've also identified a physician champion whose role will be to, um, uh, to represent us, as well as represent us to uh, Joint Commission authorities when they arrive. Um, the, uh, for staff and patient experience, we are currently, um, we have search committees for several department chair roles. Um, they include emergency medicine, imaging and radiology, and orthopedic surgery. As uh, part of, uh, also for patient experience, as part of the True North Metrics dashboard, we were looking at six domains of healthcare quality related to uh, patient quality of care. One of those elements that we are looking at is the patient experience data um, with a focus on patient centeredness. These metrics include hospital nursing communication as well as doctor communication and likelihood of recommending. Um, of note, I wanted to point out that the hospital doctor communication scores for Highland and San Leandro are both very close to 80%, which is very close to our goal um, of being within the 50th percentile. Under sustainability, we received a report from the pathology and laboratory medicine chair, Dr. Ng. She talked about the growth of the pathology and laboratory medicine department while integrating San Leandro Hospital and Alameda Hospital in the last few years. Um, she's also talked about their assistance with system-wide quality improvement measures, such as with uh, pap smears, as well as colorectal cancer screening. And that is the end of my report, and I'm ready for any questions. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Lee for the core med staff? Thank you, Dr. Lee, and, um, you know, again, wishes for the Lunar New Year and just want to affirm um, the impact on the Asian API community with uh, all that has happened during a time of celebration of families gathering together, and we have an API ERG affinity group over here, and I don't know, like, I hope that our um, our uh, community staff community that is feeling the fear, feeling the despair, uh, feel supported through this process. So there are EAP, other benefits, and hopefully collective um, processing if there's needed. Please be sure to ask. And um, uh, we, you know, we care for what's what's happening to our people. Thank you, Chair Banerjee. And, and I really wanted to point out uh, Mr. Jackson's 
email to all of AHS uh, staff um, supporting the API community as well as providing resources um, you know, in this time of uh, such sadness. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Thank you to all. Uh, thank you to the med staff leaders for that uh, for that agenda item. With that, we're going to close out item C and we're going to go into item D. So we're going to get a little bit of whirlwind right here for items D, E, F, and G. So uh, I'm going to humbly request everyone to try to stay on time. And we have a principle that, that, that we've borne out with the Board of Trustees. We're trying to do 50% presentation, 50% dialogue. So I ask presenters to kind of be efficient in getting your point across and leaving this space for us all to participate in a, in a communal dialogue on the issue you're presenting. So with that, we'll go to our standard report. This is the Patient Safety Regulatory Affairs and uh, TNM dashboard. Uh, everyone re recalls our quality structure. Uh, we have a VP of quality, that's Ms. Anna Torres, and she has a, a kind of a crackerjack team of Darshan Graywall, Nilda Perez, and Annette Johnson to do uh, amazing supportive work. So I'll give it to Ms. Torres, and if we can do this in, uh, in 10, Ms. Torres, that would be awesome. Yes, we can do it in 10 minutes. So I am going to um, share some uh, highlights of the patient safety and regulatory affairs, and then I'll pass it on to Annette and Angela to do the True North metrics and equity. Okay, so I think everyone can see my screen, right? Check. Okay, so um, starting with patient safety, um, our overall uh, year-to-date harm rate is at 3.2%. Our, our goal is 3% or less. And you can see we were doing well up until November and December where we spiked. Um, and you have these reports in your packet. So I'll talk briefly about our approach to harm. So this is essentially what we're doing about harm. And I know some of this is a repeat, but I think it bears repeating what we're doing about these harms. So um, first is improving the culture of safety. And if you recall last year when we did our culture of safety survey, we uh, surveyed about 150, 158 departments. Everyone submitted a debrief. Um, everyone did a debrief, submitted action plans and monitoring plans. Um, we requested that all those plans be focused around improving the safety climate and teamwork. Um, and all that was done. December, um, we had about 98% of the departments that had actually implemented their action plans. So we're pretty anxious to see the result of that. Our survey opens again uh, in February, February 27th. So we'll start the process all over again. Um, the second big thing that we're doing is, is the just culture. So we talked a bit about this last year when we had done the four hour training class for supervisors and above. We also did a one hour um, for all staff. So this year we're moving on to the second phase where we're doing a refresher on the uh, Just Culture. It's about a 15 minute video, um, but I think key to this, um, to the sustainability of the Just Culture methodology is that we will be doing quarterly case reviews this year where we're actually reviewing cases that occurred at Alameda Hospital with management so that um, we can make sure that it becomes part of our culture at AHS. And there will also be quarterly webinars on just culture, culture of safety and event investigation. Um, continuing with the harm, of course, um, we're still doing the RCAs for anything that's um, sentinel or significant. 
Um, as part of that, we are also going to be rolling out a new process for early identification of any harms. Um, this process is still under development and we'll bring it here um, when it's fully implemented. But what we're hoping to do is when there's a significant event, um, there's a whole process that kicks out so that we can get ahead of uh, preventing future harms. Um, and again, with the RCAs, um, the big, um, the big push really is to ensure that we're developing action plans that are eliminating or at least mitigating our vulnerabilities. Um, we really need to uh, work to ensure that our action plans are the stronger action plans rather than doing education and uh, policy review. We really wanna work to make sure that we're eliminating any, eliminating ways of, uh, of uh, causing harm. So that's what we're doing there. That's, oh, okay, patient relation events. So unfortunately, we have seen an increase in patient relations events. We are at 410 uh, events for the first half of the year. So as you can see, we're probably on pace. If we continue the same pace, we will exceed um, previous year's uh, events. About a quarter of the events are complaints. Um, and that is actually less than what we've seen before, but we have seen an increase in the uh, grievances. Most of these grievances are quality of care complaints or, or issues or access. And there was one other, professionalism. Moving on to regulatory affairs. Um, we had some on-site regulatory activity, which I'm going to call out, um, CDPH. We had a complaint visit in November. We're still pending um, the results of that investigation. Uh, for Joint Commission, we did have a for-cause survey in November, and for-cause is, is Joint Commission's uh, term for a complaint survey. So we had a complaint that they felt was significant enough for them to come out and visit us. Um, that resulted in one uh, requirement for improvement that has already gone back to the Joint Commission and they've accepted it and closed that case. Um, and then we had the EMTALA uh, resurvey, and this is the one that I really want to brag a little bit about. Um, last year, we had an EMTALA survey, which resulted in um, several um, improvement opportunities for our organization. A work group was formed and the work group met weekly and this work group met weekly for a whole year. Um, at the end of the survey, drink, uh, I'm sorry, so CMS came back uh, last week and we had absolutely no findings. Um, and this is this is major. I to have no findings at a CMS survey and we they were here for two days. Um, the exit conference was less than five minutes. Um, it was really amazing. So I just want to quickly mention who these departments were that really did this heavy lift for the organization. And they were the Highland ED, San Leandro ED, Highland Family Birthing Center, Patient Access, Admitting Medical Staff, Security, and Clinical Informatics. Um, and of course, the Regulatory Affairs Team, which led these weekly meetings. Um, so that is really something, again, I want to say I am so proud of the heavy lift that this team did uh, to walk away with absolutely no uh, findings. Uh, next steps, the team will continue to meet monthly so that they can uh, ensure that the um, compliance stays where it needs to be. 
I'll move on to the 2020, 2022 report for CDPH. These are the um, adverse events that were reported. It's a summary. So in 2022, reported 38 events. Of those 38 events, 18 were sexual assault. Um, and I, the reason I call it out is because there was a change in the definition in 2022, where an alleged sexual assault became reportable. Um, the vast majority of those 18s were alleged, so we had to report them. So I wanted to call that out. Um, and then finally, I will share the Joint Commission uh, reported events for 2022. There were seven uh, Sentinel events, and uh, the majority of these were, were false. And again, so with these, again, uh, action plans have been submitted to the Joint Commission. They have been accepted, and we are cleared with these. Are there any questions on that before I turn it over to Annette? I'd like to offer some celebration. Five minute exit interview, well done. No findings, well done. It was actually less than five minutes. I thought I had missed something and I was furiously texting Nilda, what happened, what happened? Did I hear that correctly? So. Yeah, incredible. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so if there are no other questions, I'll turn it over to Annette. I'll stop sharing. Do you mind making that a little larger? Oh, thank you. All right, so this is the Trimmer's Metric Dashboard. This is results from July to October of 2022. When we look at our hospital-acquired harms, we are sort of striving for zero hospital acquired harms. That's our ultimate goal. We have an interim goal to reduce our harms by 10%. Um, you can see that for the October, we did we were kind of just two events over that target, but for the year to date, we are about 20 events less than we were targeting. So we're doing pretty well. Um, when I look at our harms, sort of the main areas of opportunity is falls. And as Mark mentioned earlier in the meeting, we do have that monthly operating review uh, meeting. And it's very exciting to hear what all the acute care campuses are doing, including their innovative work around mobility and the idea that we're assessing mobility for our patients and really identifying how to keep their strength up so they were less likely to fall. Um, it's, in, it's sort of in um, early stages, but it's exciting to see us moving in that direction, as well as maintaining the um, sort of standard falls assessments and fall prevention strategies in conjunction with them. The other area of opportunity is our collapses. Um, our collapses still continue to remain higher than we would like to see when compared to national average. So we're working very hard on um, looking at device necessity, meaning can we get those lines out earlier to avoid a potential infection? And so we just had a grand rounds with our medicine staff that was led by Dr. Elliott to reinforce the removal of lines and determine if they're unnecessary. In addition, in February 3rd, the ICU team has, um, sort of hard scripted their interdisciplinary rounds to really look at not only uh, central lines, but all devices and their necessity and have that dialogue between our nurses and physicians so that we can ensure that we're getting those devices out um, and including a checklist so that nurses can, that is at the bedside for each patient so that they know exactly um, whether those devices are necessary and to remove them when they are not. Um, I'm going to skip down to our um, access metrics. So when we take a look at our access metrics, we're really focused on 
um, access for our current patients as well as our new patients. And when you take a look also at our health adult health maintenance, where we're really striving to make sure that all of our patients that are assigned to us are getting their preventative healthcare screens and treatments. You can see that the ambulatory team has been very busy and very innovative. They have a primary care task force to look at access. They are also looking, they're also expanding Saturday clinics, looking at Saturday events, particularly for pap smear and cervical cancer. They've implemented new technology to increase their ability to do diabetic eye exams. And so it's a very promising start and I'm excited to see where they will go. Um, next up, I want to talk about readmissions. Um, up until this month, we had a really good readmissions rate. We were well, we were actually below our target. When I look at our readmissions rates, um, Alameda is sort of our campus with the greatest area of opportunity. And I think a lot of this has to do with their age of their population. Most of their patients need to be discharged um, to post-discharge placement. And so sometimes they come back from those SNFs. And I think that's an opportunity to look at. I know that Tish Matone is really looking at that as well as right-sizing substance abuse navigation and case management staffing um, to adjust for this campus. And then I would also like to say that San Leandro is a standout star. They've always had really good readmission rates. This year, it's amazing. So far, they have maintained a readmission rate below 10%. So as a bright spot, I really think we need to look at them and understand what they're doing to really drive down these readmissions. Um, for ED wait time, oops, sorry. Um, you know, we, we started off a little high in the fiscal year um, in July um, and August when we were about eight or nine hours. We saw that turn around in September and October and our preliminary data in November also indicates that that has come down to about five hours. So that's a promising start. I know that some of this is driven as um, we talked about earlier is an increased staffing at our uh, acute care facility at our community hospitals, Alameda and San Leandro to help with the movement of patients. I know there's been tremendous effort by our ED and inpatient staff to help move patients through, particularly as uh, post-discharge placement continues to remain an issue because there are continue to be COVID outbreaks in our skilled nursing facilities in the community. Um, so it is, it is a tremendous effort and I applaud them all for not giving up. I'm a bit concerned as we move into December, what the impact will be when we get into cold and flu season. And then I am gonna table our HCAPS discussion because I want to give Angela Ng um, more time to get, to get into our deep dive on equity. Are there any questions? Ms. Johnson, I have a question. And number one, uh, you know, I'm always going to applaud you for being such a data geek. I really love that about you. So um, uh, you, this view is actually okay. Uh, the top line you see is days to third next available specialty. And you actually see this is one of the few green boxes we have, which of course I applaud. How do you reconcile that improvement in TNA availability for specialty with an almost 35% worsening of the specialty backlog? How do we reconcile those two pieces of data, which seem to be seemingly are going in opposite directions? That's a good question. So I think that's part of the reason that we put both of these metrics on here. When we talk about their next availability for specialty, we're talking about established patients who are already in our specialties. Right. So we're able to handle and see those patients. But what we need is more capacity because we're not getting new patients in, right? And the demand continues to grow, particularly because during the COVID slowdown, we sort of saw pa both patients and ourselves were reticent to bring patients in. So now we have this backlog that has grown in addition to the fact that we need more access overall. Okay. So, so to, for, as clarifying, 
Third next available is usually representative of existing patients on the on, on the template, whereas specialty backlog is kind of new referrals. Is, yes. is that is is that accurate, Ms. Johnson? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so we have a lot of de- we have a lot of new demand for our specialties, uh, and so we're doing great with with the, the with the templates we own and uh, and uh, uh, and the like. But getting new ones in is is increasingly more difficult. Almost a thirty five percent jump. So this is an interesting and good problem that we have that people want to come to us, uh, but we're, we're, we're having trouble getting them in. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Thank you. I have a question about the 30-day readmissions. Um, the sources of those readmissions are, you mentioned the older population, are they coming to us from our SNFs or from private pay SNFs? How does that reflect on on our care? I don't have the specific the specifics on that, but I can get back to you uh, on it. It is a little bit difficult for me to track because I don't know that the the records that I look at tell me whether it's our sniff or someone else's sniff. But it's certainly like something I could engage in and potentially tease out. Oh, Richard's here. Maybe Richard knows. <laughs> Well, I know Richard usually gives five-star ratings, so I'm, I'm expecting it not to be our SNF. Yeah, so I can share that um, we track the data on a monthly basis, and our SNFs are under the state average for return to acute within 30 days and also uh, return to ED visits. Um, those are the two markers that we look at very closely. Um, so, yeah, but I would say there, I think there are nine SNFs on the island in Alameda, and so there's over... 800 beds. And uh, so all of those SNFs are sending their patients to Alameda Hospital as the only hospital on the island. Are there any implications for 30-day readmissions that maybe are kind of invisible to us um, as a board member, but like would that make us susceptible to an increased number of falls or nosocomial infections or pressure ulcers or things of that nature that could then impact other kinds of scores and findings? So I think there's two things. I think one is when there's a 30-day readmission for the same diagnosis, the hospital gets potentially penalized for that and not reimbursed, right? But now there are new measures where the SNFs now are getting penalized. Um, They started with Medicare patients who are going back within 30 days, and they're going to extend it to Medi-Cal patients also. And so they're putting some um, pressure on the SNFs to put in measures to help prevent those transfers to the acute within those 30 days. So we, we, we implemented something called stop and watch to help curb that about five years ago so that we were trying to reduce the return to the acute so it doesn't harm the acute. And it also doesn't harm the patient who is being transferred a lot, right? Thanks, yeah. The financial issues are so huge. All right. Thank you, um, Ms. Torres. I, do we, we have one more segment for this, uh, right? Is this Ms. Grewal? Yeah, can I ask a question? Um, oh, go for it. You, um, I mean, I think uh, we are drilling down on each item sometimes, but just seeing the amount of pink, um, you know, not, not non-green things is, you know, is definitely something so... Uh, Chairwork at the question you asked about how can we have the next to three days and then the 
backlog that was quite the specialty backlog was really something to see. And these are patients that new patients that are, you know, deferred their treatment and we need to get them in the system. I think we would be seeing the same kind of uh, uh, probably similar things that we are going to have to uh, deal with both specialty and also in our primary care ambulatory. But I was um, hand washing, just something like that, like that has gone down the uh, how we are doing uh, compared to, you know, even last month, but also to your to our baseline. And I wonder, like, what you, what do you see? Is it like registry? Is it like like revolving new people and trainings? Like, what are some of the underpinning things that practices like that are hard to maintain our benchmark or our goals, target goals? So can I just say that for hand hygiene, we are working really hard to expand our auditing. So we're so we get a more robust picture. So I think some of that is an artifact of we're paying closer attention to it. Yeah. And increasing the denominator. So that might be why you're seeing a slight decline in hand hygiene. I think it's important because now we're getting the opinions of the staff who do the work and their ability to wash their hands, as well as counterbalancing that with secret choppers, because we have infection control as well as some of our ancillary staff collecting audits as well. So we have this really good, robust picture that I think will help us drive performance in the future. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Any other comments? All right, we're running a little behind, uh, but we can still close close out. Ms. Torres, uh, let's give it to Ms. Graywall. Um, actually, we are at Angela's report. Oh, sorry. So we're we're done with the uh, item D. Oh, yes. excellent. So um, uh, as everyone saw with uh, Ms. Johnson's uh, when she presented the dashboard, we t- we we in this in this uh, committee we talk about steep, the elements of quality, safety timeliness, effectiveness, efficiency, equity, and patient-centered. And everyone recalls last year, we made the determination to peel out equity and make it a so-called deep dive matrix, if you will. So this is uh, going to be one of our deep dives into, into one of the key components of, of, of STEEP, which is um, uh, the patient experience in the context of equity, which is, of course, that big rotunda which surrounds all our pillars. So Ms. Ng, welcome. Thank you for presenting to us. Um, 20 minutes have been allocated to this. I'm only running a few minutes behind, but uh, get us through where you need to get us through. And then uh, the, 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 the gift here is in the dialogue. So inspire us to be doing some questioning and talking after that. Great. Can you guys all hear me? Because I've been having some trouble with my Zoom share. Yeah, it's great. Or it was. Ms. Ng? Oh. oh, man. Audio check. Can everyone Can hear that? Else advance the coming back in. I think she got dropped off, but she's coming back in now. Got it. I'm going to turn my camera off just to see if that helps. Um, but in case that, Rona, do you have the file that I sent you in case I can't share? Yeah, I'll need a few minutes to pull it up, but I do have it. So while you're working, I'll I'll get ready to pull it up. Okay, sounds good. Okay, let's see if it will let me share. Um, is somebody else sharing right now? No. Okay, let's see if this works. Can you guys see my screen? Yes. Great. Okay. So 
Um, we're going to talk, spend a little time talking about patient experience equity data analysis. And I just want to preface this um, this information that I'm going to share that this is really just the preliminary stages. You know, as we are doing this work, we're realizing there are so many layers to this, and it's just continuous work that we're going to have to do. So, really wanted to just share this um, preliminary work with great support from Annette and her team to get that data coming to us. So just to start off, what was our mythology behind um, this initial look at the diversity, equity, inclusion um, lens for our patient experience data? So following our you know, industry best practices, we know that with different clinical care types, there, there are different patterns of disparity that come across. So ED versus inpatient, you'll see different groups with different experiences, some positive, some more negative. So really what we need to do is segment that patient experience feedback data down to the group, but then also more demographics beyond that to really see what, what are the care delivery gaps that we have and to really understand what needs each group um, are, are asking for, right? So it's that patient-centered individualized care that we're really looking for. So with that in mind, we know that patterns of disparity play out differently with different types of clinical care. So you know, with the groups that we are really looking at, the most robust data we have is emergency department inpatient. Um, and when we looked at emergency department, one of the first things we did was look at all the different groups. And I want to just also say, you know, we're looking at different demographics here, different, different race and ethnicities. This is obviously is not a full snapshot of every single patient population that we have, but it is the end sizes with greater than 30 patients um, surveyed because we want some, some data that we can trend um, that's usable. That being said, we are looking at, we will be looking at every group dis, despite you know, the end size, um, but just to really show you some trends that we can, we can share and start work with. So what we did here was we looked at the data across multiple fiscal years. So fiscal year 20 was really before COVID, the second half of fiscal year 20, around March, February was really when COVID started. So we wanted to see what did the data look like pre-pandemic and through pandemic and where are we now, right? So fiscal year 2023, it's not over. We still have six months of data left. So still lots of opportunity for improvement. So right off the bat, what we're looking at, we see that um, this blue line in the middle, this total, we've been trending downwards in terms of our top box percentile for likelihood to recommend, which we know is a indication of trust and whether or not patients will return to us, you know, whether or not they feel that we're giving them positive care, good care, good quality of care. And it's interesting because even though our percentage of top box is down, if you look at our ranking overall, it's actually improved, right? So from fiscal year 20, 57, our actual top box now is 49 but our ranking has improved. So what that's telling us is that nationally, there has been a decrease of likelihood to recommend for emergency departments across the board, right? So that's very key in indication. That doesn't mean that we should just be okay with this though, of course, right? We wanna keep improving. So when we look at the individual um, breakouts of the race, race and ethnicity, we see that we have declines um, with Asian American population, that are, but gradually improving. Um, we see the African-American population has increased, but then we start seeing, so let's see, African-American population, this orange line has increased, but for the beginning of this fiscal year, we've been seeing a decline. So the question is, you know, what are, what's going on here that's that might be causing this decline in the emergency department? Um, the other group that we wanted to highlight, you know, obviously there's opportunities across all groups that we're going to be looking into. 
but we wanted to see which group had been continuously declining. And if of, of all of these groups, we're, we're seeing that the Hispanic population, so this line in gray, um, has been continuously declining since fiscal year 20. So why, right? Because if you look at all the other groups, we've had ups, we've had downs. It's interesting to see what, what's going on here. Why did this, why did, you know, the white identifying patient population group improve during the first full year of COVID in terms of their sentiment of the ED, right? So it's little, little things like this, right? But Hispanic population, what's going on here? So when we break that group down more, what we can see is that if we segment by language, we get more information. And of course, language is just one, one demographic we can set, we can segment by. Um, and what we're seeing here, very interesting. You see the total overall, the total is the gray line here. The blue dot is the overall of all respondents. And then you see the breakdown of this brown line. That's the Spanish speaking, Hispanic self-identifying patient population versus the English speaking, Hispanic patient identifying. And you can see there's a big divide. So in the first full year of COVID in fiscal year 2021, we actually saw an improvement in the likelihood to recommend score from our Spanish speaking population. And the English speaking Spanish, English speaking but Hispanic identifying population, we saw a decline. So this is really interesting. Um, I think this is gonna take further investigation to see what's going on here. Do we have more availability, more availability of interpreters, for example, during this time because of the less volume in, in the ED. That might be a possibility. But why is there this decline with the Hispanic English speaking group? So just this is just really a quick sample of, you know, you can really see what the nuances that we can really get into and all the work and opportunities that we have to look here. So I don't want to spend too much time on that because I know we're limited on time, but if we look at the inpatient inpatient feedback um, from the surveys from our patients, we can see that the total line, we, we've kind of stayed about the same um, overall in terms of the likelihood to recommend metric. But you do see when you break out by, once again, race and ethnicity, different groups respond very differently. Um, overall, we, what we notice is there are opportunities for all the groups that we, we need to look in more, right? Um, Every group, though, I will have to say, has either improved in their top box ranking or is still within 1.2% of where we started in fiscal year 2022, 2020, I'm sorry, with the exception of the African-American population. So this yellow line here. So the African-American population starting in fiscal year 2021, we've seen a steady decline um, and a continued decline with this current fiscal year. And the question is really what is going on here to really identify, are, we, are there any patterns of disparity for within our, our different demographics that we can identify? Because every group, you know, we can see that there's a, you know, opportunity for improvement, but what is impacting this specific group that's causing this continuous decline where their numbers are actually even lower than the fiscal year 20, uh, you know, pre-pandemic? So I would have to say though, one thing is that it does follow national trends. Um, across the nation, we see a decline with the African-American population. We know there's external factors, but what are we doing internally in our organization that could also be contributing to this continuous decline? So some further analysis that we were doing, we broke down um, by domain of HCAPS responses. So not only just likelihood to recommend, we are looking at now caring behaviors, right? So quality and communication of um, communication of medication, communication of discharge information. 
So really the different areas that make up the full picture of that patient's experience and journey when they're with us. So for the African-American population, what we noticed is that for all of these different domains, we saw that there were three specific areas of performance that we declined continuously. Um, one being communication with nurses, hospital environment domain performance, so that includes quietness and cleanliness, and then communications about medicine. So what can we do with this information, right? So internally, we know, you know, overall the trends match with nationally, but internally we know that we can look at these areas and then further break down by you know, gender, we can further break down by age group and see if there's any opportunities for us to meet these gaps of care quality for this, for the, for this patient group and for other patient groups as well. So really this brings us to the end of this little snippet of what I'm showing you of what, what can we do further, right? So obviously, as I had said, this is just very, very preliminary stages of the work. Um, we have so many opportunities to segment further, to really break it down by site, um, to really drill down to even the local unit level um, and, sh and then share and then the work to share the data with the staff and break it down to something that's very accessible to, to yeah. our staff. Um, but in addition to that, we really can, you know, along with looking at this data, start creating focus groups to, to really talk about what is causing this? You know, were there operational changes during times in COVID? If there were positives, is that, is that kind of work, you know, can we emulate that kind of work in our current setting? Um, and also really talk about, you know, how can our leaders then take this data and information from the focus groups and then really drive the work that we need to do to, to improve and close these gap, these disparities. Mm -hmm. um, the other recommendation that we, you know, we've had overall and then looking at our, our different patient groups is how do we connect back into our community too, right? Because our community can really tell us firsthand what's going on. We have our comments that we get from our patients. But to get a full picture, we really need to connect into our specific communities to know what matters to them and what changes we can make to better curtail our environment to them. So um, I want to leave some time for questions. I know that was a lot in a very short amount of time. Well, thank you, Miss Ng. And uh, actually, I'm feeling a like a bad host a little bit. Can you tell us about yourself a little bit? And your sure. job and, and, the, <laughs> sure. and, and the job in the organization. So my apologies, I was being a bad host. Sure. I, no, no, not you. I, I I wasn't on camera and I got cut off. So it was just a bad, a bad first date kind of situation. Yeah. Really. <laughs> in, 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 introduce um, yourselves to us. And so we can know on a kind definitely. of. Definitely. So of course, my name is Angela Ng. I'm the director of care experience. Um, and I've been with the organization for about Four years now, I started as a manager in patient experience um, with HS and have you know recently came on as the director of care experience too. So I don't know, I, I don't want to spend more time giving further background than that, but any questions, any additional questions? Tell me about your daily work. What, do, what is your daily work on this issue? Because it's a gargantuan one. I mean, this, this is really something that I don't even know how I can get into the, the different layers of this because, you know, we are just starting and part of the, part of the challenge is really figuring out where to focus, because like I said, there are so many different areas that we can look into. Um, I really think that the, the daily work I think that would be required here is that we need to take this probably to like the heady committee, for example, and start talking about how can we create additional focus groups. Um, the day-to-day -day patient experience work is really about 
you know, digesting the data and then bringing it back to the units to make it actionable in terms of improvement work. So this, this lens that we have now where we want to look at everything through an equity lens means that we really need to go back and see if there's opportunities for us to fold all of this into that continued work. I don't know if that's no, no, a way of answering. No, it's, it's a yeah. good answer. I, I, yeah. I'll, I'll leave it to the other trustees in a second. But sure. my last comment is, I have two kind of feelings that I get from this report. Number one is sure. awesome. And number two is overwhelming. Um, yes, because, yes. Because I think mm -hmm. there's the great potential for analysis paralysis here. Uh, because yeah. There's such yeah. great data. And we're like, oh, that's a great question. Let's do that. And, sure. and so I'm going to, I think you, you, you gave me a little bit of help in that you would seek guidance from the heady committee because ultimately we can analyze, but when do we, when do we offer intervention mm -hmm. and who guides yeah. the resources for that intervention would sort of be my, my initial thoughts, but uh, awesome that, that, that the organization is doing this awesome that we have someone in charge like you to guide it. And it's all, it's simultaneously overwhelming because there are infinite questions at play and ultimately we got to dig in and intervene. Definitely. And I do say that I do think that we need to do it concurrently, you know, having the work, but also continuing the analysis. And I, I do want to give a shout out to Anna's team, Annette and her team for doing a lot of the data, deep dive data work. Um, in terms of guidance, I would say we actually do have resources. Um, our vendor from Prescani, you know, we're always following and reading up on industry best practices on how to approach this work because it is crazy, crazy hard, right? Yeah. Um, complicated. So we do have some direction that we're following. We're not just kind of like, oh, you know, because you're right. Paralysis with the, the analysis can definitely happen here. Thank you. Trustees? I think Banerjee had her hand up. Yeah. Yes. And thank you so much, Dr. Ng. This is, uh, you know, just such a testament to why we need to do health equity and ties so so closely to our the article that we read about being patient-centered, how can we care for our patients if we don't understand them? And um, so this is, um, this kind of segmentation stratification is exactly what we've needed for a long time. So, uh, and uh, long overdue and wonderful, it's never too late. So it's great that it's happening. And, um, there are just so many small ways in which one can start. Sometimes it can seem overwhelming and paralyzing, but every day one or two prescriptive uh, things that can be done. So I actually would like to invite some anybody from, you know, Anna, um, yeah. you, Dr. Ng, um, Dr. Swift, others who, you know, think about like when we see this kind of stratification of data, when we dig down, and we look at which patient populations within us, where, who, you know, is where might our structures and systems be creating barriers for some more than others? Uh, what are some like little ways in which people can do it instead of thinking of, a, you know, to, to, to combat analysis paralysis? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Trustee Estine, any comments? I appreciate the report and the deep dive, especially after we saw uh, some months ago, the results about whether or not people in the workforce would recommend mm -hmm. our facility to friends and family members. So seeing the same kind of statistics that are overall for patients um, nationally, is it's a good measure. Uh, 
And I think the complexity is, is kind of, there's a lot there. So I do look forward to collaboration with Hetty and hearing more through the year. Um, I think all the people that Trustee Banerjee named, um, I'm sure could bring back a lot of good information in partnership with you. And we do look forward to that as we progress. Thank you. I appreciate the feedback. Definitely. I think we should just, we, we need, I know Minnie, I think Minnie's on, but embracing the complexity, I think is one thing we talk about a lot. Yeah. So just really um, jumpstarting the champions for this and figuring out which leaders we can get on board to help drive all of this forward. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank and you very much. To our patients, I think our patient advisory, community advisory. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Swift, anything? Thank you so much. First, Dr. Ng, I just want to say, I feel so emotional right now. This was amazing. This is exactly what we all dream of, being part of an organization where leaders look at these details and escalate them to the highest levels. Um, so thank you so much. I also want to say um, I really admire you, you. Many of you may know that a group of us are in a racial equity community of practice with nine other healthcare organizations, safety net organizations, Dr. Ng, Ana Torres, Mark Fratsky, Arlene Gomez, and Mario Harding, myself are part of that. Um, and Angela has joined our team and has just jumped in um, with, you know, and it's so amazing to hear the echoes of this, this um, collaborative is teaching us on the principles of liberatory design thinking. Um, liberatory design thinking is based on the Stanford model of design and has an equity lens superimposed on that. Um, so I just want to say how much I admire you, Dr. Ng, and how much I, I'm so grateful that you've just like embraced this. The second point I want to say is I, I think that this must be part of the process. Like first, you know, we're trying to collect our data, trying to stratify it. And that feels like the biggest hurdle. Like, how are we going to collect this data? How are we going to get somebody to put it up in beautiful slides consistently? And I think we have to sit in the complexity and, and look at this data for a little while. Um, I would be curious, we don't have to answer it here, but how can we look at our um, qualitative data in those surveys? What are the patterns that we're seeing from the comments? How, and I'm sure your team has already thought about this, um, how do they provide more context for these trends? The next point I think is like, look at what we have in front of us now. We have a continuum of care over a life course. We have stratified data from QIP. We have stratified data from patient experience. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have in some way, like sort of look at this data together and see what is the experience of a particular population across various care venues and start to think about how to um, put together not just a plan for when someone's in a four-day hospital admission, but when they actually come for any care po uh, point here in AHS. And lastly, as Trustee Banerjee alluded to, we are not alone. We have our patients with us and our community, and we should continue to explore ways in which we don't just have a council where we just run something by them, but they're with us in those design spaces. They're with us just like our cancer collaborative and our, um, you know, our a separate board or board for our homeless health center where we're looking at the data together. We're not alone. We don't have to figure this out alone. 
Um, so those are my thoughts. I just am so inspired and so grateful. And thank you so much for allowing me to make these comments. Thank you so much, Dr. Swift. Um, I would say I want to give you a virtual hug first because of the emotional aspect. I feel like I was really deep in the data. So it was just, you know, you become kind of removed and have to remind yourself to really think about the reasons we're doing all of this, right? Because it is complex, hard work, but I'm just one person. I mean, obviously this is a lot of other people's efforts and energy and and will be to make this really happen and, and have some you know, positives come out of this. So looking forward to all of that and I appreciate, appreciate you and everyone. All right, thank you for that. Well, that will close out item E and we'll go into item F. Um, item F is entitled AHS and publicly reported quality measures, uh, particularly LeapFrog. As everyone knows, there are publicly reported measures. There's the CMS star system. LeapFrog is one of them. And uh, we have a history with LeapFrog of being of scoring pretty badly on it historically. It's been one of this organization's directives to improve one of the, uh, our performance on one of these publicly rated systems. So uh, Ms. Annette Johnson, our, our Director of Quality Analytics, will kind of lead us through here. Uh, Ms. Johnson, a lot of data here as well. If you can sort of give us the entree into the dialogue and discussion, uh, that would be great. Sure, no problem. Just let me know if I get too data nerdy on you guys. Okay. Um, so we take a look at our LeapFrog. For those of you who aren't familiar, LeapFrog is a independent sort of watchdog group that puts out um, healthcare grades on a uh, biannual basis for all hospitals across the nation using publicly reported data. You have the option to participate voluntarily in a survey that lets you also add to your, your grades sort of the structures and processes that you have in place regarding quality and safety. Um, <clears throat> and then they do this for consumer choice, particularly when working with insurance companies and employers for identifying who they want to do business with. So um, you can see that our spring 2022 score um, Highland and San Leander were Bs. Um, we have returned to Cs, and the, re the primary driver for this is that we were getting some COVID mitigation strategies, particularly to patient experience, that sort of benefited us in the spring. And in the fall grade, they um, no longer continued to do that COVID mitigation strategy. So um, we sort of returned to where we were before. So when I take a look at our measures, they sort of break down into... Um, Three, uh, three high-level categories of the process and structure measures. Those are the, again, those come from the survey that we submit on a biannual basis, our patient experience measures and our harm measures. So you can see here that when we look at how we performed in fall of 2022, we did very well on our structural measures. So we had a couple of measures that are outlined here that we didn't quite hit. So we didn't get all the points for our process and structural measures, but we did fairly well overall. <laughs> Then when we look at performance in um, our patient experience measures, you can see that this is a real area of opportunity for us. This is not a surprise, right? We see this in our CMS reporting as well, that our patient experience scores remain behind the national averages. We only have one domain during this time period at Alameda that was at the national average related to staff responsiveness. And then the other area of opportunity, again, not a surprise, is our hospital acquired infections under our harm domain. We have a real opportunity to bring these down in the future state. And you can see that that's why we've really focused on it this fiscal year to really drive those down, particularly given some of the increase that we were seeing during the COVID pandemic. And that increase is not, again, specific to us. We saw an increase in HAIs across the nation during the COVID pandemic. <clears throat> so that being said, 
what does that mean for a long term, right? So here's where we are today. Where do we want to go? So what I my team has worked on is doing some estimations. So we made some assumptions for the next couple of uh, leapfrog performance periods. We are they are going to maintain the current metrics at their current weight. They could fluctuate a little bit, but there's nothing out there yet that's saying they will. And that the national performance mean won't will remain consistent with historical trending. Won't make a huge leap in either direction, and that the historical measurement periods, uh, how they roll their measurement periods will remain consistent with what they have done historically. So when you take a look at that, we um, always have the opportunity to influence our process and structure measures because we report those at the time of reporting. What is the status of those at the time of reporting? However, performance periods for our HCAPs and HARMS measures are closed. We've already, we've already been through the performance period for both spring of 2023 and fall of 2023. As we can't really influence the performance period until spring of 2024. So you can see like per patient experience, that performance period is April of 2022 through March of 2023. So we have a couple of months to influence the performance there, as well as HAIs. We have this, it's basically lines up with our fiscal year. We have until June of 2023 to influence our performance. Um, so if we look at spring of 2023 and spring and fall of 2023, if we were to, the only thing we can influence is the process and structural measures. If we were to pick up all those points that we left on the table before, meaning we had all the process and structure measures in place um, with our updated performance, because I measure our performance internally, I can tell you how we're performing um, for those closed performance periods, we can raise um, all of our campuses to a B. And that is, the, that is the best that we can do for both spring of 2023 and uh, fall of 2023 for all three campuses. We, um, so when we move into spring of 2024, this highlights the domains that we were previously unable to influence. These are the ones that were in the performance period of today and have the opportunity to experience. All right, so this is where I'm going to get really data nerdy on you. <laughs> okay, so what I did is I took a look at our HCAPS performance. I know that we were partway through the performance period, and so I took a look to see how were we performing April through October. And then given that, what kind of scores would we need to get in November through March each month to get an overall performance score at the 50th percentile that LeapFrog is reporting? So you can see that for Alameda, we had a score, a top box score of 71.93%. If we want to get to an overall top box score of 78.5, we would need for nursing communication, we would need to improve our monthly score to 87.66%. That's a lot, right? What does that really add up to? So what I did is I took a look at that and said, how many more people would we need to give us a top box score to get to 87.6 and it's six more people, right? So that helps quantify it, right? It's very hard sometimes to look at these percentages and go, how do I move in a number 2%, right? So if we look at doctor communication in Alameda, we're only talking about one more person giving us the top box score each month in order for us to reach the national 50th percentile per leapfrog. Does that make sense? So we're really looking at this, this, this slide to see low hanging fruit. The other thing I wanna point out before I move on is we have made improvement in patient experience, right? Some of that is because of, of as Dr. Ng mentioned, there was a decline nationally in patient experience, but we've also seen some improvement, particularly at Alameda and San Leandro. So we have more domains that are now at the 50th percentile, right? We have two at Alameda and two at Highland. 
in the 2024 performance period. Secondly, I looked at our HAIs. So, you know, these are all measured in uh, SIRS. People don't really understand what that means. So what I did is I took a look at it and I said, if we know that the, the SIR, the national SIR is for leapfrog, and we know what our predicted is because our patient population um, comorbidities, our structures like trauma, teaching, doesn't really change over the years. So we can we can sort of assume what our predicted will be. How many infections could we have and still hit that desired SIR? So you can see that I sort of outlined that here, right? So for CLAPSI, Highland can have six CLAPSI events and still hit the national mean per leapfrog. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what does that ultimately mean? So you can see here that on the left is my recommendations. One, we need to hit all of our process and structural measures. Two, we need, you can see the domains of patient experience that are sort of the low hanging fruit per campus that we really need to focus in on. And then three, so we really need to focus in on overall hospital acquired infections, particularly um, CLAPSI and SSI and MRSA at Highland, right? The other thing I did for you is sort of outline. So if we only hit our process and structural measures, then our campuses at Highland or at Alameda would raise to a B, Highland would go to an A and San Leandro would be a B. If we do all three, um, we hit our targets for all three of our metric domains, then we would see an A across the board for each of our campuses. I think that's a big swing um, to be quite honest with you, but I do think that we can potentially get our campus uh, Alameda and San Leandro to a B and maybe even an A for Highland if we were to focus on our patient uh, process and structure measures. Um, uh, moving forward, as well as our um, HAIs. So that being said, um, we are working on uh, performance improvement plans to really, so now that we know that those are our areas of opportunity, I know that our ELT and Anna has worked very closely to identify people to help us drive those. So we have an action plan of both an operational leader and an executive leader to address each of those process and structural measures and make sure that we get those in place in time for our next survey, which will be in April of 2023. <clears throat> and then, um, Dr. Ng is uh, going to work very hard on patient experience with Roe Lofton and many of her initiatives underway from GIFT to No Pass Zone to boot camps and also education materials related to uh, medication, uh, education on medications. And then we're working, we have several hospital acquired task force underway from the CLAPSI performance improvement team to the SSI performance improvement team. And even um, I believe the STAR team is also working on uh, I always get this wrong, early recovery after surgery, which is a proven strategy to help reduce SSIs. So we have, uh, we sort of know how we, where we are, um, how we can get to where we're going, and we're working on implementing um, the performance improvement that we need to, to get there. Are there any questions? Thank you, Ms. Johnson. That was a nice report. I, uh, this is sort of a outside the box kind of question, but I know you, you can feel it. There have been criticisms of the leapfrog as an as a, as a, as a rating entity. Can you make some comments uh, about the pros and cons of us of our pursuit of a leapfrog of score of A? What what are, what what are the pros and cons of this? And again, what, address some of the criticisms of leapfrog, if you don't mind. <clears throat> 
So there is some criticism for LeapFrog, particularly uh, regarding that survey where you get to submit because um, you have to sort of pay to participate in the survey. Um, but LeapFrog has addressed those concerns in that um, before you would answer the survey, but now they're going back and they're validating that you in fact have those performance improvement and process measures in place. So they're really starting to address the concerns and criticisms that have been raised about the, their scoring in the past. Um, the other thing is, is that, um, I'm sorry, what was the other part of your question? <laughs> yeah, and I, um, no, I mean, uh, what, what is our investment? What, what value do we get out of doing this? So I would say that the nice thing about LeapFrog is it lines up with CMS and their public reporting, right? Both their incentive and penalty programs that they do. So when we work on this, we're working on our public reporting profile as a whole. Right? We're looking at both CMS, we're working on LeapFrog, we're looking at our value-based purchasing, our readmission penalties, our hospital-acquired harm penalty. It's, it's really raising the all top, the, raise it, uh, the work on this is sort of very much aligned across these different platforms. So the value of that is tremendous. Plus, um, you know, there's a reason that CMS, LeapFrog, um, are all on the same boat here, right? These are problems across the nation that need to be addressed and corrected. Right. And so we're not alone in addressing those. Right. And it really is for the benefit of our patients that we take these these issues on and correct them. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Mr. Fratsky, yeah. sir. Um, Annette, Annette ended with what I was going to say. You know, the beneficiaries of our work, whether it's CMS or our leapfrog, is our patients. Right. Better safety, better quality better processes, better service. Um, and Annette, I so much appreciate the fact that you have given us clarity on the areas that we can work on to make a difference. And that's really important. That's where it starts, right? Yes. With really, really understanding what we need to um, get better with. Yeah, amazing. Actually, the, the, the quantitative clarity is sort of amazing. Um, so I, I, again, I, I fully acknowledge that LeapFrog has its criticisms, but nonetheless, this is public, publicly accessible data. You know, I have friends in the community who will who will know the LeapFrog score of the surrounding hospital, right? And 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 that perception of us. And I'll remind everyone: in the spring of 2020, we were F, F, and D amongst our three hospitals. So the climb we've made is is significant. If you go to the LeapFrog site which I encourage everyone to do every once in a while. Uh, I think I think uh, fall of 2022 was a tough year. You can search the uh, in a 10 mile radius of Highland and 12 hospitals come up. Only two of those uh, 12 scored an A, three scored a B, and um, everyone else scored a C except for one D uh, with a neighbor across, across the water. So it was a tough grading uh, year for everybody, but uh, being, uh, measuring this uh, so we can manage it, I think is important. And I look forward to the day when we're AAA and uh, Ms. Johnson, you'll help us get there. Um, any other further comments on LeapFrog? I, I think that's a great primer to understanding what it is uh, and know that it's out there. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Yelp sort of, right? Your patients are going to be looking at that before they come, but some, some of your patients before they come here. Mr. Espinoza, sir. So, that conversation made me want to double check my data. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in full transparency, last month the Alameda SNFs were up five point three percent in return to the acutes, and so uh, it is up uh, last month. So, yeah. 
and 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 while we're on here, you know, it, it relates to you, Mr. Espinoza. CMS, uh, rate, the star rating system, is another publicly reportable one, and this is where where we sort of shine uh, uh, with Mr. Espinoza's shop, um, Ms. Esteen, uh, Trustee Esteen. Uh, yeah, I want to thank Annette for the thoroughness. Um, your data breakdowns are ridiculously impressive. I would be happy to cheat off you uh, in a math class any day. Like, please be in stats with me. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of what you were saying at first was confusing. So I appreciate the showing the Delta, like knowing exactly what the metric is, does feel like a huge uh, benefit. You've got a guide. Um, there was one portion in the presentation I think I, I, it went a little fast. It was around the slide that had hand washing towards the end. Um, and it mentioned that uh, staff could have penalties if they don't hit the mark. Um, and I wonder just in the, the implications of, of impact, while if we get it right, our patients benefit. When folks get it wrong, what are the, the points of improvement and how does that roll out throughout the entire system? Um, you know, some people have more contact uh, with risk than others. Um, but all in all, I'm really excited for the, the effort. This is a heavy lift by the entire team. And it's good to know that there's uh, a lot of leadership, but I am very curious about how this impacts staff. I don't know if you can pull oh, that. Oh, up. sorry. Um, I'm trying to pull it back up because I had shut it down. I apologize. Um, when we talk about hand hygiene, what they're really focused in on is a couple of things, like the one, increasing the audits to get that really robust picture, and then two, really looking at assessing the staff, physically watching them wash their hands. So not only do we know that during an audit that they're doing it, but two, that we have like an expert like Deborah from someone from infection control seeing that they know how to wash their hands. They're washing their hands for the correct duration. They're using the right product for the right scenario. That was one of the things we need to work on. And then secondly, it, the other measure was about leadership, accountability, right? So connecting um, hand hygiene performance to, to leadership's accountability, whether it's in their performance review or in some sort of payment incentive, right? That's what LeapFrog is really looking for, is to sort of drive accountability when we talk about these process and safety measures um, to ensure that hand hygiene fat, hand washing is incurring, right? And really put people's skin in the game. It literally, is it possible to just see that slide one more time? Um, because I, like you're saying, accountability matters. And I was just curious what the other points of accountability were and for whom, and the slide went so fast, I couldn't really see that. Let me, sorry, I have multiple monitors and it always acts a little differently every time I share. So just make sure I got the right. Is this the slide that you're speaking about? Yeah, this is the one. It looks like, so the employee reviews incentives uh, is kind of only hand hygiene and not for the other. There are a few other areas, but there's a lot to that survey. I don't have them all memorized. I can look through them and send you a list if you're really interested. But um, there are a couple other areas of domains mm -hmm. um, where there are some accountability uh, related process measures they would like us to have. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I'd love to see it. You know, it's it's there's so much um, related to physicians and how they communicate with patients and nurses and how they communicate, you know, and hand hygiene is 
a lot of staff um, and also seemed like a measure that needed some improvement. Just very curious, you know, what is, are these accountability points, the kind of thing that could lead to someone being terminated? Uh, and would that be equitable across all of the staff? That's kind of what I was wondering. When I started seeing things like, you know, the, the, the review here when the accountability is really on the leadership, it's not at the line level staff. It's really about managers and directors about holding them accountable for driving hand hygiene. Uh, BeFrog is not asking us to try to create a penalty structure for our line of staff. It's about driving accountability at leadership level. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> I was getting worried. I'm like, is somebody going to lose their job if they don't wash their hands? Probably they <laughs> should, you know, maybe if it gets to be a problem, but... Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I wanted to second what, uh, you know, Trustee Estine said, the reporting and then is just amazing. And to make it when you see the percentages and to have this kind of almost blueprint, like if we can do like six per, per month, like we can, like, uh, we can do the spring 24 and, you know, um, fall 23 if we do this 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 so I I mean we don't have the time today but I would love to have like James as our um, you know as our employee and with your uh, ELT like how do how do these things get operationalized you know like when we have to do this like how does it trickle down how is this being socialized who and you can see who's the executive leader with some of these other things where we have to like do it like at the departmental level and division level and not just I mean um, there was a really great uh, presentation that Dr. Tanvir Hussain has had done our previous chief quality officer of like why leapfrog and why we need to be part of that and part of again coming back to like it's our patients and public can have information and um, we they, that they deserve and that it it keeps us uh, accountable in many ways as well when there's public reporting of it so wonderful thank you all right, thank you for that report. I think we're gonna close out item F. I don't see any other hands out. And we'll we'll end the evening hearing from a quality improvement project report. This is the pharmacy yellow dot project. Dr. Priya Patel our is a PharmD and she's our system medication safety officer and a clinical pharmacy manager. And she's been here in the system for quite some time. Um, Dr. Patel, welcome. Uh, apologies, you're the last of the evening. You're between everyone and going home. <laughs> so let's try, let, let's try to keep this one a, a little bit tight. Um, maybe about, if you don't mind, about eight to 10 minutes of presentation, and then leave room for us to talk about it, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, so I am actually going to pass it off to Jackie, who um, was our, our, our inpatient pharmacy manager and who really drove the work. And so she will be presenting, um, if that's okay. Perfectly I fine. Am, I'm just here for support, so. Awesome. Uh, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Jackie, will you introduce yourselves to us and then um, and then have at it? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jackie Ho. I've been part of AHS for uh, five years. Um, started at San Leandro Alameda as a clinical coordinator, then was at Highland as an inpatient pharmacy manager. Thank you so much. Okay, um, so this is our Pharmacy Yellow Dot project. Um, it's basically a quality safety project around our IV sterile compounding room. Um, 
So to give you guys some background, all pharmaceuticals that come through our organization is processed in pharmacy. We scan the medications in Epic, um, and then we evaluate it for dispensing and charging designation. Um, so here's a screenshot of what it looks like when a new product comes in our pharmacy. We'll scan it, it'll show up in our system, and then we get to select whether these are default dispenses, so whether um, this is a product that is uh, that is our default to go to the patient, um, and whether we're going to dispense the full package. Um, so in this scenario, heparin would be the full 1 ml of the uh, vial will go to the patient. Um, you know, these are, the yellow dot is usually for tubes of ointments, eye drops, nebulizers, or oral solutions. Um, and then the patient, if there's a yellow dot on this product, the patient will also be charged for the full package as we're sending up the full package to the patient. Um, this kind of became an issue um, during compounding because Epic, when this was, when this product was yellow dotted indicating that a full package should be used. Um, Epic gave started giving inappropriate error messages to our technicians that was compounding the medication um, for them to force them to use the full package of the medication when only a partial package was needed. Um, so this led to uh, potentials and overdose, especially if the um, discrepancy in dosing was not caught by our pharmacy team. Um, to give you guys some background, every compound that goes through the pharmacy um, is uh, calculated by our technician and is double-checked by our pharmacist. So they will see, um, they will compare what's drawn up in a syringe and what was actually on the order itself. We did identify this issue when we had a near miss um, where uh, Epic kind of gave a warning for the technician to use more uh, of the packaging than was actually needed. So in this scenario, um, this is what showed up on Epic. Uh, the technician was slated to uh, compound 50, use heparin 50 units um, drug and to place into the dextrose uh, D10 bag. Um, the product we had in our pharmacy was a heparin flush 100 units per ml in a 5 ml package. Because this package was um, had a yellow dot on it, um, Epic thought that the full package should be used during compounding. So you'll see on the side here, um, it actually shows the dose required is 0.5 ml, but Epic thinks the total needed is the full package because of the inappropriate uh, designation. So when the technician went in and appropriately typed in 0.5 ml of the dose is needed, a warning popped up and told them to use the full package. So luckily, our, our pharmacist did catch the error. Um, we did go back a couple months just to make sure um, that there were no like similar errors that occurred. Um, and there wasn't any uh, actual errors, as we do have that final check from the pharmacist. But the inappropriate uh, alert was concerning. So we did a couple of steps to identify how to fix them. So first we reviewed 100% of yellow dotted compounded items uh, in the EPIC system. We also wanted to reduce um, these inappropriate alerts by more than 60% so our technicians aren't um, confused by the different um, doses or dose warnings that they're getting in EPIC. 
Um, and then while we were investigating these issues, we told the team to report um, any dose discrepancies that they saw while they were compounding. So everybody was educated that please follow the dose that's given um, in EPIC versus the total dose needed. Um, our results, um, so we kind of took a systemic uh, phased approach to reviewing all the yellow dotted items. We did have a list of 446 items that were inappropriately yellow dotted. Um, we went through and unyellow dotted 25% of them on week one, another 25% two weeks later, and the last 50% the last uh, one week after. We wanted to take this slowly because we wanted to make sure that unyellow dotting didn't have any unintended consequences in terms of nursing uh, workflow or dispensing workflow. We did do a lot of testing with IT and the charging team before we went ahead and unyellow dotted these items. Um, we saw a significant decrease in the error alert, not surprisingly, um, post unyellow dotting these items. And we did get a lot of positive feedback from our team, particularly the technicians, who really commented that they needed to perform their own independent checks in addition to the pharmacist checking the compounds. So here's a graph of our improvement um, after, after we've unyellow dotted the items and having prospective reporting from staff. So you'll see the error in alert um, went down from 114 to only 14 in the matter of five weeks. Um, what we did after this project, this project ended in um, September um, for a continual well, sustainability, we did, um, we are actually currently still reviewing on a monthly basis any yellow dotted items to ensure that there's um, no new items that are generating these error alerts. Um, so kind of just monitoring peripherally. We did share these practices with Alameda San Leandro and we did expand our review to the infusion, Highland Infusion Center as well. Um, so you guys might be curious, but this is how we look like in January. So we don't have um, any of these, we're, we're at 0% basically with the uh, error messages for the central pharmacy as well as the infusion pharmacy. Um, any questions? Trustees, any questions of Ms. Ho? This is a great project. Um, I'm glad that there were no errors before the undertaking of the project. I'm curious if this saves a lot of workflow time now because people don't have to check and double check when they get an error message. Yeah, um, I think it does in terms of them reporting the issue uh, to us um, and perhaps some time for from the pharmacist from like really, really double uh, double checking the errors, but uh, I'll tell you that um, you know our our pharmacy techs and pharmacists are very uh, um, very detail oriented, so they will uh, will still do um, thorough checks on all of the compounds, despite the you know uh, with or without these uh, warnings. Excellent, Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, excellent report. Thank you. Excellent report. Yeah, uh, again, one step at a time. Uh, great, great 
love love that downward graph of uh, you know error reduction. So uh, kudos to the pharmacy team and and this kind of work. We need more of this in the organization. Um, thank you for your report. With that, we'll close out item G, and this will take us to our last item, item H. Planning calendar, we're just starting off the new year. There's only one uh, comment for an adjustment in the calendar uh, for the trustees. Uh, uh, we talked about this at the prior board meeting. Uh, there was a movement, this is around Thanksgiving. I'm talking about November, so way advanced planning. We are not gonna have our board meeting before Thanksgiving, sorry, our QPSC before board meeting, before Thanksgiving. We're gonna have it after, and this is to accommodate the credentialing cycle for the medical staff office. So uh, uh, November has five uh, Wednesdays. We will do it the last Wednesday of November. I think that's been adjusted in the calendar. Madam Clerk, is that true? Yes, it has been. Ms. Dalton Giovanetti, is that acceptable? Okay, great. That made her happy. She smiled. Okay. Um, with that, we'll close out item H. And audience, that ends the uh, open agenda items. We're going to go into closed session trustees. I think we're going to be, hopefully it'll be less than 20 minutes or so, but there's a potential for a little bit more of dialogue. Um, and uh, for the rest of the audience, you have a wonderful evening. We'll see you next month. Thank you. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, 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 council, please. Thank you, Trustee Bouquet. The board will now go into, the quality committee of the board will now go into closed session and consider the items as stated on the agenda. Thank you very much.